This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Indigenous culture is full of color. Think about all the colors in textiles and beadwork and the colors that represent ceremony, directions, emotions, and native branded images. The sourcing and processing of plants, animals, and minerals to make dyes and paints is a science for some native artists too. In this hour, we'll talk about traditional and contemporary uses of color and how they are created. Join us right after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Active shooter preparedness training is being offered to tribal communities across the country by a Louisiana State University Academy. The National Center for Biomedical Research and Training Academy of Counter-Terrorist Education teaches mobile classes in Indian country. Robert Holden Academy Tribal Liaison says they've partnered with many tribes over the years to help them prepare and respond to emergency situations. He says the courses help participants learn how to better protect themselves, their communities, and infrastructure from potential threats, whether it's in the classroom, a tribal office, or elsewhere in the community. Holden sees a more urgent need for the trainings today, pointing to recent gun violence in Texas and New York. We have a program that provides training to tribal departments. Public safety can be utilized by emergency medical services, fire departments, and as well as tribal law enforcement. It helps them to train the things that they do on, on a regular basis, but it's at no cost to tribal governments, uh, tribal departments. We bring everything out there. Uh, instructors who have uh, taught uh, in foreign nations and states and other entities across the world. Holden says the trainings are also tailored to meet Indian country needs, such as taking into consideration tribal culture, beliefs, decision-making processes, and jurisdictional issues. Gun violence has been a hot topic across the country, including in the nation's capital. The U.S. Senate Thursday passed a bipartisan bill to address gun violence, which is now being considered in the House. The National Congress of American Indians met in Alaska last week for its mid-year conference, focusing on top concerns facing tribal communities. As Emily Schwing reports, some tribal leaders are calling for more unity within the NCAI, and others are seeking a shift in how sovereign tribal nations describe and represent themselves. The day before the mid-year conference convened, NCAI announced its CEO, Dante Desiderio, would not be in attendance. According to a statement, he is observing an administrative leave of absence. The statement says the leave is appropriate under the organization's policies governing the current situation, but it offered few other details. Harold Fraser, chairman of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, said turmoil within NCAI is a problem for member nations. And that's something that is really uh, frustrating because, you know, the fight's out there and you know, and we can't be uh, fighting inside or internally. So, you know, I think we need to get back to the core uh, functions of a government and, and start advocating for, you know, better health care, better house, more housing and things like that. During a General Assembly, President and CEO of the Jamestown Sklalem Tribe in Washington, Ron Allen, 
called for a paradigm shift in how tribes present themselves in order to emphasize their sovereignty. Are you a tribe or are you a nation? Okay, there's a meaning the same. Nation is more reflective of sovereignty. And, and so you're changing that, changing the paradigm and, uh, and the perception by the outside world looking at you in terms of who you are and what you're standing in is in America. So I always say American Indian Alaskan Native governments are among the family of American government systems. NCAI's annual convention will take place in Sacramento, California in late October. NCAI has not announced a theme or released any further details about the annual meeting. For National Native News, I'm Emily Schwing. The Milwaukee Bucks picked up Marjan Beauchamp during Thursday's NBA draft. The native athlete was the 24th pick in the first round. Many in Indian country closely watched and celebrated his selection. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. From the rich, earthy tones used in Navajo weaving to all the colors of the rainbow beaded into medallions and regalia, color carries meaning, stories, and emotion. Colors can represent holidays, sports teams, and the identities of companies and people. Some colors, specific to tribes and geography, represent indigenous animals, plants, and minerals used to make them. In the art world, color theory is a prerequisite for many art programs. In film, color adds another layer of drama and aesthetic to help tell stories. In this hour, we'll talk with Native artists about the creation and use of color in art and culture. And we want you to join us. Call in. Tell us what colors represent your Native culture. How does color tell a story on your traditional regalia or ribbon skirt? If you're an artist, what goes into choosing colors? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Call now so we can be sure to get your comments on the air. Let's talk now with Anung Beam. She's up in Chiging in Ontario, Canada, where she is the founder of Beam Paints. She's also from the Chiging First Nation. Anung, thanks for joining our discussion today. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. Tell us more about your passion for colors. What inspired you to become a paint maker? Well, it was kind of a, a bit of a long journey back to the start, really. And when I was a little kid, I was raised by my parents were both artists. And I was homeschooled, and they took me with them everywhere they were going. <clears throat> my dad, Carl Beam, was uh, the first indigenous artist in Canada to be purchased by the National Gallery of Canada is contemporary art. So he was working in traditional art forms 
and also contemporary. So we had a lot of uh, regular kind of normal European style paint in the house, but then we also had uh, his own paints that he made. And that was so much fun to be a kid and to be, be out with him exploring rock cuts and exploring different rocks and different things that you could do with it. It was really uh, adventuresome. And later on in, in life, as I kind of uh, became an artist myself and had a family myself, uh, later I revisited some of the things I learned as, as a kid. And learning that way, it took a while to kind of realize, uh, to give it the weight that it needed, because it wasn't like school learning, you know, when you go to school uh, and they give you a stamp at the end and like, okay, you are a certified, etc. And it took a while to really recognize my own traditional knowledge that I had learned from him. So after I did that, I was uh, was really excited to see how many people were interested in what I was doing, and it led to the beginning of Bean Paints. And all of the paint that we make is rooted in that tradition, but we've also expanded it to uh, like all all of our our artisans. Indigenous culture is so great at incorporating new materials, new colors, and uh, growing. So we, we also incorporate a lot of new colors, and we have a range of about 50 colors now in watercolor. That's fascinating. So tell us more about making paints. Is it a complicated process? Um, yeah, well, it's not really that complicated. If you want to get super simple, paint is just a binder, something that's sticky and it's going to hold the, the pigments together on whatever you paint it with. So you have a binder and a pigment and that becomes paint. And depending how you want the paint to behave, you're going to choose different kinds of binders. You might want an oil-based binder so that it's waterproof. <clears throat> or in case of watercolor, you may want a water-soluble binder so that you can do watercolors. So the kind that we specialize in right now is watercolor, and we use maple sap and gum arabic sap from the acacia tree. Now, do you have some indigenous hues that are included in this? Uh, I think you mentioned more than 50 different colors. Yeah, we do. We have some colors that are uh, directly from Manitoulin, and then absolutely all of our colors, even if we do work with, uh, say, a non-toxic, a really vibrant uh, pink or something that's synthetic, we ground it in our traditional pigment first. So we almost have like a high, all of them are hybrids, and then some are just plain, like a, a clay, clay colors. Well, Anung, I've got to ask you, do you have a favorite color or hue? <laughs> That's funny because I remember people ask my dad that too. And he'd say, as an artist, I can't afford to have a favorite color. And uh, But uh, I think <laughs> I, I, I feel that way. There's some that are my favorite to make because they're really fun. Like they, every different pigment has a different personality. Some of them mix together like whipping cream and other ones are quite like stringy like toffee and sticky so I have different ones that I like to make like uh, different ochre pigments are really fun to work with like that. Now some colors are very significant in many native cultures I'm thinking of blue right off the top of my head 
Can you talk about that significant colors and 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 how you make those? Yeah, uh, it, it it is really it is really interesting. I I know that traditionally we had uh, all all cultures have had really limited uh, palettes, and that certain colors, the more rare they were, would become more valued. And blue has traditionally been a really highly valued color in indigenous cultures and also in European cultures. It's just it's quite rare to find blue pigments and uh, long-lasting sources of blue pigments. So we approach blue a couple of different ways. We first and foremost want to make an affordable paint that's also safe and non-toxic. So we do a, a hybrid of uh, manitoulin stone that we fix with a synthetic ultramarine. So we get a very vibrant blue that also has the quality and the strength of stone, but it's also safe and affordable. So it's it's uh, it's quite an honor to be tasked with uh, shaping out some of the the colors that are so significant to people uh, to artists and their work. Now, as I understand it, the process that you use for making your paints it's very clean, it's natural. Having paints like that that are non toxic is it is it hard to manufacture paints like that? and get that kind of certification so that people, especially children, I'm thinking, are, are okay to use it safely? Yeah, absolutely. And we're super proud to be one of the smallest companies to actually achieve that level of certification. So we work with the Art and Creative Materials Institute to be certified to ASTM D4236, which is a, a degree of certification that means that these have been studied by toxicologists, by third-party toxicologists, that they've been tested and they're safe for even the youngest and smallest of children to use. So if there is a case of accidental ingestion or anything, I always tell people paint is really made out of rock. So you shouldn't eat it. You shouldn't eat rock. You shouldn't put rocks in your eyes and you shouldn't put it on your skin. But if you did, you'd be fine. So yeah, there's quite a bit to making sure that everything is tested, even even pigments that we gather ourselves, because I think people can tend to think anything from the earth is uh, pure and safe and natural, but the earth is really powerful, and we have to respect the Mother Earth's power, and sometimes that comes in heavy metals or really things that need to be treated with a lot of respect. Well, Anung, that certification you just shared, it sounds kind of like a top secret passcode or something. It's pretty, pretty detailed. Uh, lead, I remember as a kid growing up in, in homes, people were concerned that the older homes had lead in their paints. Is there still lead in, in artistic paints that, that people use, that artists use? Yeah, yeah, definitely there is. There's uh, heavy metals are really prevalent in uh, professional artist colors, cadmium red, cobalt blue, those are all colors that, that have heavy metals in them. And some manufacturers use synthetic versions that are, that are safe, and some manufacturers don't. So you have to be really aware of the labels and uh, what kind of paint that you're using, because it's, uh, it's definitely something that I don't feel is enough education on in uh, art schools or even just the general public. 
Yeah, I don't think so either, because I've always assumed that, that lead has been pretty much removed from all paint, but obviously not, especially with these artistic paints, and, and definitely a concern for anybody, any artists working with colors, working with paints. Among the pandemic, did it, it impact your ability to manufacture your paints? Um, no, actually, because we we manufacture everything right from the tree and the rock raw ingredients into paints and because we collect a lot of our own materials we were really kind of just left to our own devices and the small suppliers we work with so we had a we had a really nice time here on Manitoulin we spent a lot of time with family uh, uh, gathering different different parts that we use to make the paints we're also uh, 100% plastic free in our production and uh, our packaging of paints. That's something we're super proud of. We work with uh, Corbier Lumber, an indigenous uh, sawmill operation across the road. It's also owned by my boyfriend. And all of they make all of the wood pieces that we pack our paints in. So we pack our paints in cedar, in birch, and every time you're holding a paint, you're really holding a piece of uh, nature. And you can, you can feel that in it. We're talking now with Anung Beam, who owns a paint manufacturing company in Ontario, Canada. And she's describing the process that goes into making those paints, some of the different colors that they manufacture, and just cultural impacts of colors and paints and hues on Native American people and our culture. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We definitely want to hear from our listeners today. If you're an artist, if you use paints, or if you just have an eye for color, we want to hear from you. Give us a call. We'll be back right after this break. Awanmi, an award-winning indigenous restaurant in Minneapolis, is just one of a growing number of native-run restaurants opening in cities and towns across the country. This is an exciting time for food entrepreneurship in Native America. Our regular food show, The Menu, is next on Native America Calling. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Today we're talking about the traditional and contemporary use of color. Do certain colors have specific meaning in your tribe? If you're an artist, what goes into choosing a color palette for your work? Join our conversation, 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We're speaking now with Anung Beam, and Anung, before we went to break, you were talking a little bit about your process for making paints, how you gather materials, and, and you mix colors. So I want to learn a little bit more about what that's like in a typical workday for you, owning and managing an indigenous paint company. What all do you have to do every day to, to keep that business thriving? Oh, well, it's a... Uh... 
I'm really lucky to work with my family uh, a lot. So um, we wake up and we go over and uh, sometimes I'm running a paint mill where we're grinding rocks and kind of getting it down to uh, that consistency that we need to make paint. And then sometimes it's a time where we're working on pallets. So we'll be going over to the sawmill and looking at uh, different pieces of reclaimed wood. We tailor a lot of what we're doing so that we can make the best use of uh, materials that have been discarded. So we give everything a second life. And that's always really fun. It's really creative. Um, I really like getting a chance to work with other artists and Indigenous artists will get in touch with us and let us know if they have uh, colors that they really want or special projects, and we'll do. We'll try to our best to come up with something. But I'm really proud that we've worked with um, Tanya Luke and Linkletter for uh, Copper Ink to for performance at SF MoMA, and we've worked with uh, Dwayne Linkletter to make sumac dyes for a project that he had. So that's a, another fun part that I really enjoy. Well, let's talk now with another Indigenous artist who's got an eye for colors and a talent for using them. Michael Shiashi is the founder and technologist at Alter Native Media in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's Cato. Michael, you've been a guest on NAC before. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Michael, you are a comic book illustrator, a 3D graphic artist, a video game developer. You very much have a finger on the pulse of pop culture. How important is color selection in creating rich media content? I think it's vital. Um, you know, I, obviously we could also talk about conversely, you know, black and white media. But, you know, honestly, my whole milieu is making sure that ideas, whether they're in the comic pages or in, you know, the apps or video games we do, that the communication is put forward and really color really helps um, enhance, augment, improve that communication. Uh, and that's one thing I find so powerful about it. Does a lot of time and effort go into choosing colors? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the joke there is like when you go in your closet, what colors are you going to choose for that day, right? And it's important to you as a person to represent. And then as we're representing sometimes a whole group of people and individual of those groups, it's very important uh, to make sure that we have an understanding of maybe some of the color palettes available of that person, of their culture, um, as you guys mentioned earlier, what it might mean for that culture. Yes, it's vastly important, and quite frankly, it's also important to understand how it's being consumed in its final form, uh, in this case, like on the comic page or such. Um, you have to know, you know, when you're developing the colors, when you're doing color work, uh, you know, what sort of printing options it will be. Is it digital? So you have to understand not only what you're putting into, but what the output is as well. Well, tell us more about your comic books and how you choose colors for those projects. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I uh, actually kind of sidestepped into the comic world. I, I do have an art degree from um, Academy of Art, MFA. Uh, I wrote a book on comics, and then because of that, I, I met all these great people, including Tim Truman, who's known for, um, among other things, his Scout War Shaman comic. Um, so I've recently been working with him and doing some colors for him to help him out with his newest project, uh, Scout Marauder. Uh, so that's been fantastic. But as you say, it's important. We also have projects that we did, say, for the Smithsonian to make sure that we uh, had adequate uh, representation for specific people, Pawnee and Navajo, when we were looking at the treaties. 
making a visual representation for their online knowledge, uh, Native Knowledge 360 program. So we did, we did a bunch of research. We coordinated and see what uh, you know, visual imagery we could sample from, from the Smithsonian's backlog, and uh, you know, went out and, and looked at individuals both in the live state, made sure we got color samples, compared them, discussed them. So there's a lot of, of work that goes into it. And anyone that has done beadwork or, or done leather work knows that it's very noticeable when something is out of place. So it's very important to communicate these things well. Yeah, it sounds like it. And the fact that you have other artists that bring you in specifically to provide color to their projects with, with comics and such, I'm thinking colors, um, it must be pretty cool, pretty critical if they're bringing in you just to consult essentially on the color aspect, right? Absolutely. I'm very lucky, as I say, I got to work with many artists. Uh, most recently on the Smithsonian with Maria the Wolf Lopez, who's doing covers for Marvel now. Um, so color is absolutely vital, and, and like I say, it's I quite frankly, when I'm I'm sort of evaluating, okay, I've, I've worked on this page. How does it look? I'll quickly sort of toggle on and off. Again, remember I work digitally usually, um, but I'll toggle the the colors that I've just added on and off. Remember in comics we have this you know sort of multi-layer um, effect. So we lay down the flats, so there's a solid color, and then we begin adding nuance, almost like um, inverse sculpting. We add layers upon it, so this might be depth of tone, shadows, highlights, um, bounce off, you know, reflections of light from other sources. It's vastly important to help communicate. And then from the tech world, I also do tech stuff, right? Um, color becomes important not only to, as I mentioned, to communicate ideas, but to effectively communicate anything. Um, you know, in the tech world, I have to make sure that my accessibility conformance for the for products that we produce, like e-learning and apps, is there. And that means that I have to make sure and go and look at the color contrast to make sure that people with low visibility can actually read either the text or whatever it is compared to the contrast of color behind it. So there's a lot that goes into it, as you can see. Michael, you have a master's degree in 3D modeling. All of this expertise that you have with regard to using color and all these formats, was that a big part of your education? Oh, it absolutely was. I mean, I didn't realize it until I got in, um, you know, to the program for the MFA. I had gotten in and I had done some 3D models and thought, oh, that'd be fun. I'll do 3D models. But, you know, you really have to go in and, and understand before you even get to the tech part, the entire cadre of, of artistic, you know, you have to understand art itself, what it means, how to communicate. And then when I got into it, uh, you know, the actual the software and such, it was such a surprise to me that it's basically um, sort of pulling on my old world. Uh, you know, I, I have a film degree and I did film work in college, but that's exactly what you're doing in a sort of a virtual and digital sense is creating with lighting, with cameras, all this enriched environment. It's like a digital studio that you have to do with 3D modeling. So the color is absolutely important, as is the lighting, other things. And sometimes you don't think about that when you're jumping in. Like I just mentioned, I just thought, oh, you know, models, that'd be great. But then there's so much else that goes into it. Color theory, what is it exactly? It's just a fancy way to say I understand what colors can communicate and I understand their language to continue to communicate, right? Um, you all also have added to that information, as you sort of suggested, there can be a color, you know, a cultural significance to color, uh, which is part of, you know, color theory. Um, but usually it's like, hey, remember when you're working with color, remember that this group, be it, you know, Asian, Pacific Islander, you know, Caucasian, may have a, European may have a, you know, specific color, and it may mean something. So the idea of color theory is, generally speaking, you know, what, what do colors convey to a general populace? And then what can you do with that language to nuance it? 
the case would be like if you learn to read and it's like you have these short sentences like Sam the cat, you know, the, the, you know he was at bat, and then you begin using that to have more complex sentences or maybe even a novel. Now, everybody that's doing this, everybody that's, that's working on comic books, doing 3D modeling, video games, are they all using these same principles and color theory? And are, are they thinking about it on this fundamental level like you are? You know, I think in some ways they are, whether they realize it or not. You know, case in point, people that have a simple drawing class or sketch class, one of the first things they do after they kind of explain the real world and how our eyes perceive it is how light affects things. And I bring that up because, as I mentioned, light also affects, you know, the color itself. So even if it's a black and white sketch, you at some point as the illustrator probably have thought, oh, my light source is coming from here. Well, you've automatically added tonality, right, lights and darks. And just think about how much more nuanced and multiplied that information would be with colors. So I absolutely think, especially the people that work in digital, but also especially all those artists that, that work in the real world realm, uh, for instance, I think of all the vibrant colors of Ryan Singer here in New Mexico, and his art is fantastic. So they absolutely, whether they underst or whether they think about what they're doing or not, they absolutely understand it at some level, I would assume. Now, you've said several times that lighting has a big impact on how colors appear in photos and on film. What other factors play a, a big role in, in how colors appear in, in digital formats? Yeah, and, and honestly, like I mentioned, uh, sort of the co more complex, and we'll go more complex to so simple, but, you know, as I mentioned, in the 3D world, if you have an object that's a certain color and you bounce light off of it, if there's a nearby object, it may have some, um, some bleeding, if you will, or some carryover of that bounce back of light, of color. Um, so it's definitely in, in the digital realm as well. Um, but lighting itself, really, as I mentioned, is only one. And let's, let's take, you know, if we look at color theory, and the, and the easy way to do that for people that are interested, if you look at any of our streaming media, and you fast forward or back, you know, you see the icons of the little thumbnails sometimes. And if you just go left and right and kind of just look at that rather than what's on screen, you'll see these little encapsulated little still images. And it's fantastic because why I bring that up is sometimes the color has some, you know, it has uh, its own sort of uh, placement. So if there's a red next to a green, there's contrast. So if you looked at all these thumbnails together, one was adjacent to other, the proximity is what I'm getting to can actually uh, affect it as well. So you have proximity, you have distance, you have size, you have light. There's a lot of factors that are involved with it. Michael, it's really, really fascinating to think about this. And I'm really thinking about this huge trend now with these NFTs, right? These non-fungible tokens, this crypto art, and some of these images that we're seeing. Are these same principles being applied in those spaces too? I definitely think there is some of it. And as you suggest, you know, they have a specific purpose. So in some cases, I know that the uh, the, the item has to be, you know, unique in many ways. So maybe someone has, has gotten very creative with the use of an embedded color that maybe is not necessarily that visible to the eye or other things. Um, but as you know, like, as you've seen, the, those items can be any number of things. So it's kind of the Wild West in that particular one. But I definitely think those that have created and crafted something that you can go, oh, that, that looks visually appealing or visually striking, they definitely have a sense of that, even in the NFTs. What are some current projects you're working on that have some interesting uses of color? Well, um, as I mentioned, we, we do a lot of uh, federal work, so we work with Smithsonian. We've got some projects upcoming as well, some more comic coloring and illustration work with that. 
uh, currently in working with uh, the Ohio History Center um, to do a, a virtual sort of experience, and that has a lot of influence from comic books and just storytelling and, and gameplay for video. Um, so that's real fun. Obviously, we'll have to make sure that we approximate the, you know, all the historic value and colors and, and run that through. And as I mentioned, at the end, make sure that the, you know, it's accessibly conformant and make sure that those for, that use assistive technology can use it. So there's a lot that goes into it. And as I mentioned, still working with uh, Tim Truman and others on, on comics. So it's a lot going on. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. Just fascinating. Let's talk with another artist and hear their thoughts on the use of color in art and culture. Zephron Anderson is an experimental archaeological weaver and silversmith in Shiprock, New Mexico. Zephron, it's great to have you back on the show to talk about your work. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it to um, offer my, my insights on these topics. Thank you. Absolutely, Zephron. And tell us more, what goes into creating the vibrant colors that you use in your weaving? Um, it's to take a lot of the, you know, the stories of the colors all the way from, you have to understand the progress of colors, you know, back from when everything was dark, light was given, and then how for the longest time we only did represent, represent, representative color where it's very much like you're doing pattern, like, you know, the old, old style graphic arts where you're doing patterns to represent colors and then cross hatching and then limited colors get represented with other shades of gray and black. And then as your culture, your clan evolves, there are more colors added to those palettes. And a lot of times we're not trying to compete with mother nature or father sky in terms of what they present us. So a lot of times, our palettes are very muted on purpose for those those situations. And you can see that a lot with in Navajo weaving, this whole process of progress of society and how we interrelate with each other by the amount of colors and the intensity uh, through different time periods, depending on what materials are presented to us, you know, all the way from the ancestral Pueblins and the, all the ancestors that lived in North and South America and their combined knowledge all the way to, you know, speculative future endeavors uh, in Navajo philosophy and the way we interpret colors is that sometime after, well, I don't know, in the future, we should have tangible goods made of light that have colors that don't exist anywhere in nature, very much like uh, what the gentleman is talking about in 3D, because I've done 3D modeling. And when you're working with, environments such as that you can create colors that don't occur naturally so even within navajo philosophy and culture you know we're built in looking towards the future and the past and then we have to look at what are our decisions with all of that knowledge uh, on what it does on your art so i say i'm a, a archaeological experimental weaver because you know in the core basis of our philosophy is don't compete with nature and you can only complement it so everything must be utilitarian it must be simple you must not use a lot of materials um, to manufacture soft goods in terms for trade for mainly for food and you know 
life happens and different histories and cultures compete and you get introduced to other colors uh, that are simply available because that culture has made the decision to experiment with ethics and extractive uh, philosophies that go against their own, but it introduces a wonderful new product. And that, that you have to put all of that together and then come up with your, your color palette. Um, and right now, as a weaver, you know, being out in the desert and the continuing dryness uh, trend that's, you know, for at least from what mm-hmm. I see in, in old weavings is at least 300 years of this heating up and continued dryness compared to the past. Because, you know, there are instances about 1,200 years ago, Chaco Canyon, Chahokia, up there in the Great Lakes, um, even in the Washington Spokane area. Zephyrin, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have to go to break now, but definitely going to let you continue sharing all this wonderful knowledge and information. We'll be right back. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a no-charge, 24-7, confidential and anonymous domestic, dating, and sexual violence helpline for Native Americans. Help is available by calling 1-844-7-NATIVE or by clicking on the chat icon on strongheartshelpline.org. This program is supported by Strong Hearts Native Helpline. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about color today. How are paints and dyes traditionally made in your native community? Still time to call in. 1-800-996-2848. I repeat, 1-800-996-2848. One of our guests today is Zephron Anderson, and he is an experimental archaeological weaver and silversmith. And Zephron, before we went to break, you were talking about 300 years of history and the sun shining on rocks and plants and other natural materials used by Navajo weavers and how they heat up and they cool off. <laughs> it was really, really cool. Please continue. Uh, all that in a nutshell is that, you know, to decide what colors are presented to my weaving, which is always just a natural complement to what Mother Earth and Father Sky provide us, is that I have to first look to the past to see what our ancestors have left us in terms of knowledge. And I have to look to the future to see where does this weaving fit in the next 300 years of knowledge, because these weavings and textiles always have this ability to time travel. They convey the ideas and the teachings of the weavers, you know, eight generations ahead. And then you have to look at the present because you can't, you can't shape the future if you're unable to do it in the now. And right now, you know, everything is retracting in terms of color when it comes to natural dyes where I'm from, uh, simply because of climate change and, you know, what my grandmother's mother observed from the 1820s. You know, there are mountains here that never melted in her entire life that have melted within my lifetime. And these all affect what we use for uh, natural plants. And the retraction is, is that I've gone out and harvested colors that don't grow back. 
to where I feel obligated to propagate some of these dye plants in my own garden because there's just a simply lack of water um, or mm-hmm. the erosion. It's just the, the ecology is, is shifting. Like uh, Mother Nature is is turning her her blanket over into a different being, and those colors aren't available for any for us anymore. So I'm going back to what happened to our tribe during times of um, great stress. Um, during the, our fight with the Mexican Empire and working exclusively with natural colors as they present in the wool, which is, you know, the, the amazing uh, palette of, yeah, of grays, a gray-blue, brown, black, and white. And then the, the continuing colors that are present, you know, complement that. And, you know, with just those few things, you can create practically any color imaginable and then tell a story that these colors are representative of colors that are no longer available, just like we did in the past. And does this mean I'm turning back the clock? No, um, because we have new colors that I can create using what I've learned in, in college, at the next college, applying color theory, where, as the gentleman before me will understand, you can mix uh, white and black, yellow on a magenta and create pretty much the entire palette of color just as you spin the yarn um, some of my weavings now I just have okay. those three colors dyed I find natural black and white and I create the entire palette for my weavings. you know it okay. takes me that I have to spin it as I'm weaving much like a painter okay. has to mix their color when they're creating their their right. art and Zephyrin, I'm sorry. I, has... I, I just want to, I want to ask you another question about that as well because this it, is really, really interesting. And I apologize for for interrupting. I just I want to make sure our listeners just can fully absorb all this information. And I want to ask you, I mean, how long does it take for an artist to master the use of color? I mean, what you're describing, knowing so much about the history and how colors were made and how they can be used today. Sounds like a lifetime of knowledge to get that. Uh, among weavers, and I'm pretty sure all artists out there, it's interge- intergenerational knowledge. You know, you know, as we say in our, our tradition, Spider Woman uh, and her clan figured it out in the beginning, and she had access to all of this back then, and she did selective teachings because eventually we as a people would come up with the same ways that she already knew. And that the, these things is what's going to teach us how to be beings that live in complete harmony with our surrounding ourselves and family and community. And that is an essential teaching that is passed on, you know, among artists, I believe, everywhere. And Okay. And Zephyr, so you earlier you were talking about these environmental threats to plants and colors and and how are artists such as yourself, how are you you dealing with that? Uh, going, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you, you blend some of these colors and, and the colors that you're working with, but uh, it, it sounds to me like that could be a huge threat towards a, a lot of what we think of as traditional Native art if, these, if there are these threats to, to so many of these materials that artists like you have been using for centuries. Isn't that, that's the, the kind of, existence that we've been taught that you know our our life is finite our cultural is attached to these geographic areas 
when weaving, uh, when you look in archaeology, weaving breathes and moves with the climates, much like the corn goes to the, the upper elevations when there's dryness, and then when there's abundance and rain, it, it goes all the way to these areas now that are so inhospitable that, you know, you have to have generations of knowledge to survive. Art flows with that conflict between, you know, natural cycles and the human need for food and water. And that's what creates the art in this amazing uh, balance that we all walk on. So you, you might say that threat is a negative word. To me, it's change. And mm. change requires people to change too. And we can change gracefully, which is pretty much a lot of our, our life ways and cultures, or we can fight it. And, okay. you know, either way, you know, Mother Earth and Father Sky have their process that they're not going to change on our account. And that it's just us and our how we feel about this change. Well, what's, so let's I'm talk more about the change. Yeah, yeah, and let's talk more about the change in and how colors are being reflected in contemporary Native art. Are are you seeing any really exciting trends? Exciting trends that were done a thousand years ago everywhere, because <laughs> uh, like uh, <laughs> uh, the the esteemed madam in the beginning of the interview was talking about. Sorry if I don't remember your name, because um, I, I can barely hear on my phone. Okay, um, is that you know. New colors that are very rare are usually reserved for the supernatural, uh, our deities, and then eventually people of power and great wealth. And it's this thing for like, as these colors come available to us, you know, the rest of the, the community gets to benefit from those colors. So I've seen it just in the last 150 years among Navajos in the 1880s when the railroad came to Gallup, weavers had access to deep purple, lemon yellow, lime green, all these really deep intense hues that came from Europe. And the cost for them was their health because they used these dyes not knowing that it would absorb into their system and cause problems with their liver and kidneys. But that's reflective in the philosophy the more that we dabble in things that aren't readily available, the more these negative things happen. And that's when you have to make the choice. You have to make it sustainable. I can use these advanced techniques and colors, but sparingly and in a way that enhances our art and our message. Because all artists have a message that they're trying to do, and I hope that everything is for the benefit of their community and their tribe and clan. Um, so right now, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm doing CYMK um, subtractive color theory for my weaving to bring a depth of color that you can't get through dyes. Because uh, most, most people are familiar with Navajo dyeing. We take a plant and we put yarn in hot water and the color transfers from the plant to the yarn. Um, that process is weight for weight, natural material dry to dry weight of wool. So that's a massive amount of natural material to create these colors. And like I said, some of those plants are not growing back. I have just what I have in my garden growing. Um, and okay. to supplement that, 
we have Navajo churro that has 12 different colors that I'm using to blend. And I'm just using these three chemical dyes to make a really intense blue, yellow, and a magenta, like a hot pink, to create all the missing colors that aren't available naturally anymore to create my weavings. Mm. And the weavings have more to say with those techniques. And I've seen painters, you know, they're emotionally moved by textile now, whereas before they would just see it as, oh, they they died and they did these colors, but there was never an expression of in-between, like a, a gradual shift from a deep red into streaks of orange into bright yellows. And mm-hmm. it all seems alive. You know, the next, the next step sure, after sure. that is to make that out of light. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> Zephyrin, and you spoke earlier about an interpretation of colors, and I, I found that really fascinating. And I want to ask... Anung, because Anung, I read an interesting article in Native Sun News by a Lakota elder by the name of Ivan Starr comes out, and he explained that the ways colors were interpreted long ago was very different between Europeans and Lakota people. For example, the colors of the U.S. flag, red, white, and blue, symbolized virtues like purity, valor, and justice, but those colors didn't mean the same thing to the Lakota. Is that true for other native peoples as well? Do they interpret colors differently from Europeans and settlers? It's a Anung, um, you... is... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sorry. absolutely. Yeah. I think that um, uh, definitely different indigenous groups interpret colors in different ways and also just different groups of people worldwide. Like, um, I know in, in Asia, uh, different colors can be considered good luck or bad luck, and here in North America, similarly. And even within, amongst our different groups, we have different uh, uh, valuations of like which color represents the East or the West, even though there can be a, a lot of overlap between our communities. Yeah, so it's definitely uh, the colors... Each community, I think, has colors that really resonate with the stories and the legends and values of that community, whereas blue, I think, can have a really strong uh, value in the Southwest, maybe where water is more rare, and representing water becomes a very sacred color. And up here in the North, where we are surrounded in water, I think red is a very is our very powerful color that represents the vitality and life and warmth surrounded by all the cold and water. So it's, a, it's definitely an insight into the values of communities. Michael, I'd like to ask you to provide some insight as well with regard to interpretation of colors, how they're interpreted, excuse me, how they're interpreted and how you think about that with the digital art and images that you work with. I definitely agree. And and I'll kind of teasingly uh, say, you know, as as a boy growing up on the farm in Oklahoma with all the red mud, white was never really a a welcome color because it wouldn't stay white, right? So uh, (laughs) when we do digital and when we do these different projects, yes, absolutely. As I mentioned, we have to be very cognizant of not only our, our representation of that people and cultural and ideas and how they saw things, but making sure that we're clear in our, our communication to those non-native, non, non-internal group members, right? So it's one of those unique balances, as, as both mentioned earlier, 
the balance in this case is making sure that the communication both educates those people we're trying to educate and make sure that it, it gives authenticity um, to the actual people that we're talking about. And are you seeing any trends in terms of, of certain palettes or certain types of color combinations that just seem uh, particularly impactful in, in digital art like you work with? Yeah, I Honestly, what catches my eye, and I kind of alluded to it earlier with a traditional artist, uh, but other digital artists and comic book artists um, that I know and have, have you know, met and been lucky to see is uh, like Dale DeForest. His use of color is fantastic. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, having, you know, understanding, like I mentioned, the film and the, and the color theory and everything, seeing these vibrant colors and uh, as the individual just mentioned, you know, making sure that they're, they're clear, whether it's RGB or CYM, CMYK, that's fantastic, right? Actually seeing the final product either on screen or in your hand, and it's just as vibrant as it was, you know, when you, when you first produced it. That's fantastic. And that has to do with the technology, right? That has to do with, you know, what materials we're using, making smarter choices. So, yeah, I'm definitely seeing some trends towards vibrancy and, and smarter use of color now that we all have, uh, you know, or at least can get these tools more readily. This has been a really, really fascinating discussion. I want to give each of our guests just a, just a few seconds if you could share where we could learn more about your work. Michael, you first. Where can our listeners find out more about what you're doing? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I'm available at um, A&M's website, which is alter-native-media.com or okay. anm.llc. Um, and also I have a presence on Twitter or Facebook, so you could at me there. Uh, but yeah, Got it. always okay. feel free to talk about it. Okay. Anung, how about you? Yep, you can find us um, on Instagram at BeamPaints and also at our website, www.beampaints.com. Okay. And Zephron, do you have a website or Instagram? Yes, I have an Instagram at Z-E-F-R-E-N underscore M and a website at www.zephron-m.com. And that will probably put you in the right direction for everything that's doing. Okay. Thank you so much. Zephyrin, Anung, and Michael, appreciate you all coming on the show. It's been a wonderful discussion about traditional and contemporary uses of color. And we really thank you for your knowledge and expertise. Join us next week on Native America Calling for another lineup of discussions about indigenous issues and topics. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is our distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support by Canyon Records producer of Native American music, including Rad Millicote's Kehasin, Kinship and Hope. All Canyon titles available from iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and CanyonRecords.com. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, whose culturally relevant clinical online MSW degree is available without leaving your community. Application can be made in three steps at online.nmhu.edu. Changa <laughs>
Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.